You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast brought to you by New Ultra. Welcome to season three. My name is Tracy Delastro and I'm a second year student dietitian studying at Wrexham University. I also work alongside this as a bank dietetic assistant at Wrexham Myler Hospital. Through this podcast, we aim to share knowledge and inspire student dietitians and gain insight from knowledgeable and experienced guests. We've got a fantastic season lined up for you, so settle in and join me as we hear from brilliant, inspiring guests. For this first episode of the new season, we're kicking off with an insight into critical care, and so I'm delighted to be joined by an expert in the field, registered dietitian, Dr. Danny Bear, to tell us student dietitians more about working within critical care. Danny is a consultant dietitian in critical care at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust with more than 10 years experience in the speciality. Danny has a keen interest in research and has completed a prestigious NIHR clinical doctoral research fellowship in 2021, where she explored the measurement and prevention of skeletal muscle wasting during critical illness and the effect on recovery. Her research continues to focus on this area. Danny was instrumental in guiding national critical care dietetic services during the COVID-19 pandemic, being awarded British Dietetic Association Role of Honour in both 2020 and 2021 for her work. In this episode, Danny will share her experiences of working in critical care and show us that it's not really as daunting as it sounds. We will discuss how student dietitians can make the most of a placement in critical care and how to gain further experience in this area. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome our first season three guest to the podcast. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Tracy. Thank you so much for the introduction and also the invitation to be here um, chatting about a topic that I am very passionate about. So thank you. Oh, no, the pleasure's all mine. It's really exciting to to hear more about it. So to start off with, it would be great to demystify critical care for a little for our listeners. Can you talk us through what your current role is and what a typical day looks like for you? Yes, sure. So my particular role is uh, slightly different to the usual clinical dietitian because I'm in a consultant dietetic post at the moment. So my role is 40% research, 40% clinical and 20% education with some management and leadership thrown in. Um, And I'm sure no one wants to hear about those sides of the job. So I'll focus a bit on or mostly on the clinical side of the role and, and what that would look like for my team. Um, And certainly I think it does need a bit of demystifying. I think it's one of those areas that everyone's a little bit scared of, um, but actually from from my perspective is the most exciting place in the hospital to work for sure. So a typical day for someone in my team, um, and I should caveat that and say that all dietetic critical care teams in different ICUs will all work slightly differently. So what I say here about how we work is... um, unique to guys in St. Thomas's that might be slightly different um, depending on where someone works. But we typically work at 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in my team. Um, and that's for two reasons. Um, first of all, because we like to attend the morning handover. So that's the night ICU medical team handing over to the day team because that's where we find out quite a lot about our patients and what's happened overnight. And secondly, um, we have to get TPN orders in by 10 o'clock. So if we started any later, uh, that might be a little bit tight. So so we tend to um, come into work for eight o'clock. 
Um, from 8 till 8.30, uh, we spend time screening the electronic medical notes. So we look at what's happened kind of over the last 24 hours for the patients, and that's how we pick up our referrals. So I am fortunate enough to have quite a large team of dietitians. Um, so there are kind of eight dietitians, in, well, seven dietitians and one dietetic assistant in my team, which is amazing. Um, so we are able to see every single ICU patient as a blanket referral. We don't wait for the patients to be referred. We will see everyone within 24, sorry, 48 to 72 hours if they're on an enteral feed or within five days if they're orally, um, just managing oral intake. So we screen the patient medical records, find out what's happened in the last 24 hours or so, uh, and then kind of plan our day from there, um, work out which patients are the priorities for the day and kind of where they fit within that referral criteria. At 8.30, we go to handover. So that should really be half an hour, but sometimes it's 45 minutes, depending on what's happened overnight. Um, so we do that on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, and we just essentially on a Monday and a Friday, listen to what's happened overnight with the patients, um, you know, pick up any potential um, patients that we think maybe are heading towards needing parental nutrition. That's a really good place to kind of pick those patients up. Uh, and on a Wednesday morning, that is that that handover turns into what we call our uh, therapies ward round. So essentially um, all members of the MDT come, so including occupational therapy, speech therapy, physio, dietitians, and we talk about uh, all the patients in a bit more detail, kind of covering their rehabilitation needs and if there's any issues that we have. So once uh, the handover is over, we should have a pretty good idea of who we need to see for the day. But top of the list is reviewing any patients on parental nutrition because those orders, as I said, have to be in by 10 o'clock. So it's quite tight sometimes, particularly if you need to speak to the surgeons or speak to the consultants, speak to the nurse, go and see the patient. Um, it can take a little while. Um, and we are an intestinal failure centre. So we do have quite a lot of TPN patients. Sometimes it can be up to 13, 14, 15 patients. Um, so that can take quite a lot of time to kind of get those patients done. Um, and then the rest of the day really is getting through that list of patients on the ICU and the HDU. Um, so reviewing those patients where we spend a lot of the day on the ICU. But we also have roles in guideline development um, and update. So we will uh, update all of the nutrition guidelines that we have on ICU. And we have a very big teaching role. So we do a lot of teaching for the MDT uh, medical students. Um, we have a bi-monthly half a day session for teaching medical students, which is fantastic. So that's when they're in their critical care rotation. Um, and we also do some kind of shadowing and teaching with our ICU technicians. Uh, we might do some teaching with the registrars. We might have people coming to shadow us. Um, so there's quite a lot going on. And then we all also have some role within the department that we need to fit in there as well. And as much as possible, we try and fit in some ordinance service evaluation and research where we can. So that's kind of a very high level typical day and um, we are also fortunate enough to have an indirect calorimeter so when we're assessing patients rather than having to you know use a calculator to work out their energy requirements um, we can use indirect calorimetry for suitable patients if we need to as well so there are now four people in our team who are, are competent to use that so that's a nice little addition to our assessments as well which might fall within that day. Oh, great. That's that sounds amazing. Um, it sounds like you're all very busy and it sounds like you've got such a fantastic team and you all sound like you work really well to to get the job done. So um, 
with regards to, to critical care dietetics what is it that you what what drew you to it what what do you love about it yeah it's really interesting um because i never thought i was going to work in icu i d- it was not an area that ever appealed to me i sat in the camp where i found it really intimidating and i thought there's no way i will ever work there i thought i was going to be a renal dietitian um and then i was i I got into an ICU job and loved it so much because I really feel like you're such a part of the team. So we communicate with every member of the MDT and we, because we can't communicate so well with the patients because they're often on a ventilator and sedated, you really get to know the MDT really well. um, And that's where you get a lot of your information from. So we have great relationships with the consultants and the nurses and the junior doctors and the physios and the pharmacists. And I really thrive in that team working environment. So for me, um, you know, sometimes I felt on the wards like I was working in a little bit of a silo or no one truly understood what I did as a dietitian and what I could bring to the team. But I feel that in ICU, you know, you're really appreciated and, and people will seek you out for your, you know, dietetic knowledge on a patient, which is is great. Um, so that's one reason that I love it. And then the second is obviously the patient's um, they're, they can be really incredibly complex, but not always. But for me, I can really see when we're, um, you know, providing a benefit to the patients, which is really nice. And I think seeing them from being at their sickest and their most vulnerable to then seeing them in the follow-up clinic when we see them after they've left hospital, three months after they've left, left hospital, um, you know, and seeing that transition for me is so rewarding. Um, so that's really great too. And also, you know, you get to know the family members, although you don't get to know the patient so well, you do get to know the family le- page, the family members on a level that you wouldn't necessarily on the ward as well. So there are lots of like great positives, but I think for me, um, the biggest one is um, teamwork, but I should also say because obviously with my research hat on there is so much great research that can be done in ICU and there's a fabulous research community so from a personal perspective I think the research within critical care is super exciting too so I think that's a yeah another day that I another reason I love it yeah that's fantastic I mean as a current student myself the MDT and interprofessional working is it's kind of drummed into you and it just shows how in any role as a dietitian it's so important but like you said in critical care especially with communication barriers it's it's vital um, and so so important so um, thank you for that. So you did mention about the research which obviously um a lot of student dietitians hopefully will have have read up on I know I have so I know you've been heavily involved in it in the research within critical care. So do you feel like it's an essential part of critical care? You said there there's so much to to expand on with regards to research. So um I mean what what are your feelings about further research in critical care? Yeah, absolutely. I think not only is it essential for critical care dietitians, I think it's essential for all dietitians. But what I want to say on that is that when I say research I think that also includes audit and service evaluation I think sometimes when we say research people think oh god like I can't run a clinical trial but it doesn't have to be that big 
um, you know, an audit or a service evaluation or a small, you know, quality improvement project all give you the skills, uh, the same skills that you would get from doing research. So I think that's that's really, really important. And my team will tell you that I drum this into them all the time. Unless you're evaluating the service that you're providing, you've got absolutely no idea what's going on. And data is so powerful. So sometimes we think we know what's happening, but it isn't until you collect the data and analyze it that you go, oh my gosh, that I thought something completely different. So a good example is um, in ICU, something simple, like does the prescription um, equal the delivery? So what do patients get what we prescribe them? And that's a really common little evaluation to do in ICU. And often people will say, oh yeah, we feed our patients really well. And then you go back through the notes and realize that actually you're only delivering 60% of what was prescribed. And it's really, really important to know that because then you can adjust your feeding protocols uh, on the back of the knowledge that you've just gained from the data collection. Whereas you couldn't do that if you hadn't collected the data. So there are Lots of reasons why I, I think it's really important. Um, and also, you know, we can't be clinical 24 hours a day. It's, you know, that's not very fulfilling, I don't think. And, you know, the audits and the service evaluation and the research really do give an additional depth to the role that I think just makes it a bit more um, or gives a bit more satisfaction, I think. But on the research topic also, there are obviously different levels of research. So at a very, very basic level, all of us should understand the literature. So should we, we should all be able to do a literature search, read a journal article, critique the journal article and kind of know the evidence for the clinical area that we're working in. And that's research. And we do that frequently because we practice evidence-based medicine. But I don't think as dietitians, we still necessarily do that as well as we should do. So at a basic level, that's the, that's the basic research that we should all be doing. And then there's, you know, collaborating on a small project or running a small project yourself. And it goes all the way up to, you know, leading a clinical trial uh, or leading a, 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 a team of researchers who run clinical trials, which, um, you know, there are some dietitians who do that. So I think, yeah, research is a broad term that includes audit and service evaluation 100%. We all need to be doing it. At the very basic level, you must understand the literature in the clinical area that you work in. And and no more important than critical care because there is so much literature out there and it's changing a lot. The landscape is really changing. So it's very important to, to keep up to date with that. Yeah, thank you for that. It's it's, um, it's a big eye-opener really because you know, for our students, we're constantly researching literature reviews and things like that. But I've never really thought about the auditing, you know, once you're once you're in the role, we don't really think about that going forward. So that's another thing for students to be aware of and good practice, really. And um, so, as you know, in the UK, some dietetic students don't get a lot of time in critical care while they're on placement, uh, which is a real shame. So does that look different in Australia with regards to your training? What experience did you have when you were training to be a dietitian? Yeah, really interesting. So um, I actually, well, I can only speak from my personal experience. I had no critical care experience as a student or I didn't even set foot on an ICU. And that's because the hospital that I did my placement in, um, the dietitian was not allowed on the ICU. So I never got exposure to that as a student. I don't even remember if we had a lecture on critical care. I'm sure we would have, but I don't remember that. So I 
and because I've been in the UK now for 15 or so years, I don't know if that has changed, but I suspect it's probably based on, um, you know, hospital by hospital basis, I think um, would be the case, which I think is similar to here. I know that there is um, or has been in the past and hopefully that's changing a feeling that critical care is too complex and too specialist for students. And I think that's a real pity. I completely disagree. I think there is a way that it can be managed so that the students can gain a lot from it. Yes, of course, they may not be able to, you know, understand everything that's going on with a patient, but the process of the nutrition assessment is exactly the same as it is for any other patient. So, you know, you gather the information from the medical records, uh, you interpret that, you gather the information for your dietetic assessment and, um, you know, do your physical examination of the patient, you make a diagnosis and, and develop a plan. It's all exactly the same. It's just sometimes there's quite a lot more going on. So what we do um, at our in our ICU is we've got um, very specific tasks that the students do. And we at one point had a workbook that took them through everything they needed to collect. So is the patient on propofol? If they are, how much? Are they on um, rather receiving renal replacement therapy? Do they have a tracheostomy? So we really guided the student to what they needed to collect. And then we would discuss it kind of at the end of that assessment. And I think that that makes it much easier for the supervisor and also for the student. Um, but I think, yeah, it's a, it is a real pity. Um, and I think we need to move away from the feeling that it's too complex. We just need to find a way to make it work. And if that means making those couple of weeks in ICU a bit, bit more structured, then we should absolutely do that. And that's certainly what we've been trying to do um, at Guys and St. Thomas's so that we can have students within there. And I'm hopefully, I've been pushing a bit to have um, students in consolidation as well within critical care. Um, so specifically on the HDU, so placement three consolidation, I think the HDUs or the high dependency units would be a great place um, for the students to have their final consolidation week. So we're kind of working towards that at the moment. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. I know from experience um, with students on courses in the UK, it's it's often seen, like you said, as complex, but also quite daunting. And because people don't get the experience and the exposure, um, everyone's a little bit scared of it. Um, so, I mean, it's, it is a real shame and it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job there having the consolidation and just the exposure um, and kind of demystifying the whole area. Um, yeah. So what would you say to students who wanted to learn more or get more experience in, in um, some of the courses that currently aren't able to get more exposure to to critical care what would you what would you advise for those yeah it is a difficult one isn't it because it's it's balanced with um the ability of supervisors to be able to take students in icu but i would say you know if there's an icu at the hospital that you are doing placement on if you can ask to at least do some shadowing that would be great because as you said that exposure is really helpful. And, and I think part of the the kind of um, scariness around ICU is that obviously the patients are very sick. There's lots of noises. There's lots of machines. They're the sickest patients in the hospital. And there's this thought that they all die. But ICU is one of the safest places for patients to be. It's one-to-one -one nursing. You know, they're monitored like no one else in the hospital. So sometimes you hear those alarms, but the safety net on the alarms is set really wide. So things get caught before they happen. And actually the mortality rate on, on an ICU is not nearly as high as it is, for example, on an older person's unit. So 
I think that 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 makes it quite scary thinking that there's all these noises, there's lots going on. The patients are very sick. They are, but, you know, a lot of the patients survive. And I think that's a, a really nice mindset to go in with that actually, yes, you might you might see the sickest patient now, but actually hopefully we'll get them up and walking out of the hospital, which is great. So I think um, back to the question. Um, yeah, trying to shadow if you can. So working that out maybe with your portfolio manager or the student lead at the hospital, asking if there's any opportunity, even just for a couple of hours to be able to shadow and, you know, set foot on an ICU and do a tour and understand a ventilator and, a um, you know, the renal replacement therapy machine and all some of the monitoring. Um, and then also if there's opportunity to pick up a student project, for example. So if you're a, a master's student and you need to do your dissertation, is there an ICU project that your, that has been put out to you that you might be able to do. Um, and then when you've got a supervisor, can you say to them, oh, well, it would be really nice to actually physically come on the ICU if I can and see what's going on. So I think it's trying to make opportunities where you can and also take them when they become available to you. And just a little plug also for the um, British Dietetic Association Critical Care Specialist Group. Um, we have a student um, member as well. So we've had a student member for the last couple of years. Um, and so keep an eye out for vacancies within that role as well, because it's a really nice opportunity to kind of get a bit more of a view of ICU too. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I think um, I know I, I sit on the um, BDA specialist group to to have a look at, at what's going on. And I think a lot of students may not be aware of the specialised groups, but I think um, it's definitely something to look out for. And especially if you are interested in certain specialised areas, that's great. Thank you. And brilliant advice. Um, so like you said earlier, um, you had no experience on placement in critical care. So how did you actually navigate your first role in critical care? I was so fortunate. And to this day, um, I feel very fortunate to have kind of landed where I did. Um, so I kind of had moved to the UK and was doing some bank and locum roles. Um, and I had been at Guys and St. Thomas's um, and um, was coming to the end of one of my locum positions when something came up in critical care. So it was actually, this is really funny, but it was part-time critical care and part-time on the older person's unit, which just couldn't be more different, but it was really quite funny. Um, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to take it because I didn't know if that was really a role that I, or in a clinical area that I wanted. And I still had in the back of my mind that I you know, really wanted to focus on renal. Um, but there was a dietitian who uh, was the, the 8A principal critical care dietitian at the time, Claire Reed, and she had a PhD and she was very heavily involved in research and um, we'd got along quite well. And I just really loved her attitude towards dietetics and her attitude towards critical care. So she loved it. Um, she had a great relationship with the team. Um, she was doing a lot of research. She was using an indirect calorimeter. So she was kind of doing all the things that kind of enhanced your role as a dietitian. So I thought, no, okay, I will take this role. Um, and as you say, it was very daunting. And initially I knew absolutely nothing, um, but Claire spent quite a lot of time with me, really taught me the importance of, you know, reading and understanding the guidelines that are out there. So the ESPEN guidelines, for example, um, understanding the literature and thinking about, you know, where did our equations come from that we use to calculate energy and protein targets. So really got me critically thinking about the area. 
Um, and I could see how she'd built this amazing relationship with the medical team and the rest of the MDT. And I just was desperate to be a part of that because it was just amazing. And I'd never kind of seen a team working like that with dietitians before. So for me, it was, I was just really lucky to have a, a great, great mentor and clinical supervisor. So I guess for anyone moving into that area, if you are isolated and it's your first ICU role and there's no one else in that team, do reach out to the critical care specialist group and try and find yourself a mentor um, or an, you know, an external clinical supervisor because I think that helps immensely. Um, it's, it is really helpful. Um, yeah, and I think I've kind of modelled my leadership and mentoring style on Claire to this day and then went on to do a PhD like she did. Um, she doesn't work as a dietitian anymore. She moved to the US. But yeah, I think that it's, for me, it was so much about the mentor as much as it was about the clinical area. Yeah, I think, and like you said, taking the opportunities and sometimes taking the risk into the unknown, it, you know, it, it can often pay off, which is fantastic. Um, I know you've mentioned about how how challenging critical care can be uh, sometimes, like any area in dietetics can be. But what would you say are the most challenging areas of being a critical care dietitian? Yeah, challenging is definitely one word for it. Um, um, I think the most challenging thing is um, getting an accurate physical assessment. So, you know, patients who are lying in a bed look very different to patients who are standing up and mobilizing. Um, and it can be really challenging, particularly in our ICU. We're not very good at getting weights, for example. So, you know, a patient might be in ICU for six weeks and we've never had a weight for them. So we've estimated everything. So for me, I think that is one of the biggest challenges. You have to be quite savvy about how you get your information. So we've just started recently um, bringing in using calf circumference. And there's a lot more evidence around the use of calf circumference to kind of estimate um, lean mass in patients. So we've been using that. We always make sure we do a proper physical assessment as much as we can to work out, you know, fat stores and, and muscle stores. Um, you know, we might use ulnar length if we can. We've recently got bioelectrical impedance analysis um, so we try to be as savvy as we can to get as much information as possible because that physical assessment is really difficult. And particularly if you go on day two when the patients are really fluid overloaded and then you might go a week later and you think, I don't even think that's the same person. Like they look completely different. So for me, I think that's the biggest challenge. Um, and then I guess communication because you can't talk to the patients, at least initially when they're sedated and on the ventilator. Um, and the ones that are able to even uh, mouth some words, it can be very frustrating for the patient and very frustrating for you when they're trying to communicate with you, but you can't quite understand what they're saying because you desperately want to help them, but you can't quite get it. And they might not be able to write, for example, on the whiteboard because they're too weak. So that's a challenge as well. So I think the communication with the patients, although sometimes you can get information from family members, but it's amazing how family members do not know heights or weights of their patients. We expect them to, but they have got absolutely no idea, um, which I find really interesting. Um, and then the physical assessment, I think they're the, for me, the two biggest challenges for sure. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, with with regards to measurements and things. And I'm quite surprised about that because really thinking about it, I don't think I would know my family's measurements. But it, it, it's true, isn't it? It's, you don't really think about it. But 
again with the communication barriers it goes back to the importance of the MDT working so it just shows how important it is being being available networking and just just communication with with other health professionals it just shows that the big importance of that doesn't it yeah, absolutely. And and that's just on that point is really interesting because this is where like having a great relationship with your pharmacist or your physio can be really helpful because uh, often the pharmacists are phoning the GP for other reasons. So um, for medication consolidation or other reasons, and the GP might have the last weight and height from a patient. So the pharmacist will often get that anyway because um, of drug dosing, they need that. So you can confirm with the pharmacist, are they calling the GP? Have you called the GP already? Did you get weight and height? Um, So that's one way of doing it, but also physiotherapy. So we frequently ask our physios when they're doing their assessments, could they please hoist the patient to get a weight? If they're getting them out of bed as part of their rehab, could they sit them on the chair scales? So having that relationship is great because it means that you can kind of help each other out with, with gathering some of the information that you need. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a big eye opener and it it makes things a lot easier if, if you've got the contacts and then communication, definitely it's, um, it's a lot easier. So obviously in any healthcare setting, it can be quite emotional. It can be difficult to work in how in a critical care environment, how do you build your resilience in working in such a challenging environment? It's such a good question. And, you know, I've asked, been asked this before and I don't really have a very good answer. Um, I'm generally a resilient person by nature, um, but that was certainly tested during the pandemic. Absolutely everyone's resilience, I think, was tested. And I've been really trying to think about this because as my team gets bigger, I think that resilience piece is really important, no matter what area you work in, but obviously particularly, I think, in in critical care. Um, for me, it's about um, communication. So not bottling things up. I think it's really important that if you're feeling sad or emotional, it's okay to step away and it's okay to talk about it. So I think we're quite an open team and we have certainly, you know, different debriefing forums that you can go to and that we would do as a team, for example, to reflect on, you know, particular cases that have been really difficult. And I think it's really important to just talk about how you're feeling. So for the most part, I feel able to, um, and I don't want to say this in a way that makes me feel like I'm, I'd lack empathy because that's not the case at all, but you have to disconnect yourself from the patient sometimes. So you go in there and you do your job and you have to disconnect yourself because if you take that home with you, then you will never get through another day. But there are some patients that just really, really get to you. And that could be because they remind you of a friend or a family member or, you know, you've met their family and had a great conversation with them. So sometimes those patients do really stay with you. And there are certainly you know, a a group of patients that I remember from 10 years ago still, I remember their names, I remember what they came in with, I remember their family members, because they've just really, something has made them stick with me. Um, But I have found definitely talking about those really difficult circumstances um, is really, really helpful in that regard. I think also um, having confidence and competence in your job really helps too because I think that if you don't feel like you're doing a very good job or you're not sure what you're meant to be doing I think that makes people feel less resilient so being confident and competent and feeling 
able to do your job and knowing that you're doing it to the best of your ability, I think also helps to build resilience for sure. Um, but I think making sure that you step away from work is really, really important. So try not to take work home with you. I'm probably not very, I know I'm not very good at that, but you know, try not to take work home with you when you leave at the end of the day, make sure that you've got a plan for something nice, whether that's, you know, what's the way that you de-stress? Is it exercise? Is it hanging out with your friend? Is it walking your dog? You know, so trying to make sure that you have got those activities outside of work that help you to, I think they call it like breaking the stress cycle, because I think that really helps with um, building resilience as well. So I don't think that's at all a perfect answer, but um, they're the kinds of things that I've found have helped me over the years. I think that that was perfect. Um, I mean, they, that was such good advice. I think as a student dietitian, we often get thrown into situations and circumstances and you're not mentally, physically prepared for it. And especially in an area like critical care, um, I think it's great where you said about coming home and having something to focus on, you know, just taking yourself out of that zone, debriefing and things like that. I think it's really, really important and something that as a student, maybe previously hasn't really been focused on. So I know in my course, um, in particular, it is something that that we're actually learning about and how to cope with and stuff, which is fantastic. And hopefully other courses are the same. But um, no, that's really good advice. Thank you. So I know, obviously, we've talked about the critical care and, and the COVID and how you had a, such a huge impact in that. I, I bet that was a really big hard-hitting turnaround for you in critical care I mean how how did you find all of that chaos <laughs> um there are two sides to it. I mean it was incredibly difficult you know just seeing patients continue to come through the doors was very very difficult um the hardest part for me was actually um at the time was seeing how much the nurses were struggling and not being able to help them. So we could do basic things like top up their trolleys or help them to turn a patient or I'd retape NG tubes or change the feed. You know, you can do basic things. But there was so much as a dietitian that we're not trained to do because we're not nurses. And it was really, really difficult to see how much they were struggling and not be able to help. You know, and I remember one day I went onto the unit and I said to a nurse, um, what can I do to help you? And she just stared at me because she had two patients who were really sick. There was so much going on. And I said, okay, I'm going to rephrase that. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to top up your trolley. I'm going to change your NG tape. I'm going to change the feed because I can see it's about to run out. And if you want me to help you turn the patient, I can do that as well. Because she just couldn't think about what needed to be done. But the flip side of that is that I think led to a lot of burnout for other staff members like myself because I was spending so much time trying to help other people. I didn't also think about how I was helping myself. And then I came out of the end of it, you know, having worked weekends, doing turning team shifts and nursing assistant shifts and spent so much time with this huge amount of guilt that I couldn't help the nursing staff that that has then impacted on my mental health. So I've learned a lot from that myself um, about you know, and I, I actually kind of came to hate this phrase, but, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first type thing. I did, didn't even think about that. Um, but there were good aspects too. So, you know, the teamwork, the way the team came together was phenomenal. You know, we upskilled 22 dietitians in our team to work in ICU. So they all got an experience that they never would have had before. And everyone really kind of came together uh, in a 
kind of team working um, way, which was amazing. And, um, you know, we had all different members of the MDT working on turning teams to prone the patients. And, you know, I met hospital dentists and all sorts of people who were doing that. And yeah, so I think the teamwork was phenomenal. Um, but then the flip side is obviously the burnout is not great. Um, yeah. So as yeah, double-edged sword really. Yeah, definitely. It sounds, um, it just sounds like a, a whole whirlwind really. And I think the whole role of any health professional has changed hugely because of the COVID pandemic and I think dietetics is one of them I mean do you see the dietetic role in critical care evolving further and if so how how do you feel it could go? Yeah I think there is huge opportunity um, for dietitians in a critical care in an advanced practice role particularly um, with a lot of extended scope of practice you know, elements that you can add to it. So, you know, the placing the NG and NJ tubes, can we learn to place central lines for TPN, you know, doing indirect calorimetry, bioelectrical impedance, um, muscle ultrasound, all of those, you know, sorts of assessment uh, and interventional techniques that we don't often do. What I think we're not very good at sometimes is the physical assessment part because it's really difficult in ICU. I think as dietitians, sometimes that part doesn't get as much or we don't give it as much attention as we should do. So I think there's a huge role to come in terms of developing advanced assessment techniques, um, advanced practice roles, um, prescribing in ICU, I think could be really helpful as well, um, particularly around parental nutrition, but also, you know, perhaps laxatives or multivitamins or those sorts of things would be really good. And obviously there's a huge research role and that is ripe for the taking for anyone who wants to get involved in research. There's a lot, a lot to do. Um, but yeah, I think the future of critical care dietetics is really, really exciting um, if we take the opportunities that are being presented to us for sure. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, we, because we don't deliver the intervention, so we come in, we do our assessment, we write a plan, we tell the nurse and then we leave and it's someone else who delivers our intervention. Um, so I think we need to be really careful that we don't devalue ourselves and that we can show the added value that we can provide. And that's not just in critical care. I think that's everywhere. Um, so we need to be sure that we're, you know, showing everyone what we can do, not showing that we kind of just walk in and walk out again. Yeah, definitely. And I think it brings a positive, even more positive spin on us student dietitians that are training to see what we could potentially go out to. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. But Danny, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for sharing all that valuable experience with us. I really appreciate it. And I feel that you've definitely demystified the critical care area of dietetics. Uh, you certainly made me feel a lot less daunted and I'm sure the listeners will agree as well. So thank you so much for being our guest today. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. That was great, great chat. Well, thank you. Danny's social media handle will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. A huge thank you once again to New Ultra for making this podcast possible. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RD2Bs for future shows. You can also follow New Ultra on social media at New Ultra across, across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will be out soon, so please come back and take a listen. 